Sounds like you managed to have yourself an actual positive experience with Anaconda. That makes at least one of us, I think. <laughs> yeah, all right. Well, I wanted to play with GNOME 42, and I thought, why not try it on the upcoming Fedora 36? So I grabbed a nightly, went to go install it, and, uh, well, it started with a less than positive experience. I didn't have a mouse cursor. Oh. Yeah, so um, that was daunting at first. My positive note is, turns out, Anaconda works all right without a mouse. Hey, there's that. Um, I got to say, though, the disk partitioner... When you've got like a lot of disks in your system and you're trying to like put your home drive over here and your VAR over there, I mean, Wes, let's just say I'm still restoring data. It went real bad. Hello, friends, and welcome back to your weekly Linux talk show. My name is Chris. My name is Wes. And my name is Bren. Hello, guys. Great to have you here. Coming up on the show today... We have a game-changer release of GNOME just on the horizon, around the corner, as they say. We're going hands-on with GNOME 42. We're going to report what's new and what we are so damn excited about. Plus, the first official alpha of Asahi Linux's M1 installer is out, and we're going to try and get that installed on a MacBook live during the show. How you feeling, Wes Payne? Ooh, I'm excited. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Now, picture it, audience. Uh, Wes is here. He's got his ThinkPad in front of him. And then off to the side, he's got a card table. You know, like a, something you might maybe eat like a, like a microwave meal in front of the TV. I was on. hoping there was going to be some <laughs> sort of food here. But no, right. no. Instead, it's a very beefy MacBook. Yeah. So this is the other thing right now is this is all really new. So I just got this sucker updated because it had been neglected for a little bit. So it just got all updated. You got to have like the latest macOS on there. They got a shell script you can run. Um, got all that sorted, but I've never really seen anyone say they have this running on a MacBook Max. I see a lot of M1 errors. I believe the dev team has it running on their minis, but I've seen nobody that's crazy enough to put it on the MacBook Max. So this may blow up in yeah, our faces. I'm, I'd like to be clear. I am not guaranteeing that I'm going to return <laughs> a working machine no. to you. We'll find out uh, coming up here in a little bit. Uh, but before we get into any of that, before we get into the booths and the picks and all of that, I got to say time appropriate greetings to our virtual lug. Hello, Mumble Room. Hello. 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 Good evening. Man, it's good to see you guys. Powerful force Oof. today. I was all out of sorts last week. Didn't even introduce the Mumble Room because we only had like five, six Ooh. people in there. It was weird because the daylight savings and I thought maybe the show was dead. I wasn't sure. Uh, but then now we got 25 people in there. So it's fantastic. Thank you, everybody, for making it on a Sunday. We love having you here. Yeah, you guys. Good looking bunch, too. All right. Should we do it? You want to, like, officially kick it off? Because I got a few things I could get into. I got to buy you some time. You do got to. I mean, yeah. We you got, like, things to download. Do you want to officially kick it off? Yeah, you do have 53 gigs of free space, right? Um, <laughs> I think I should. I don't know. You tell me. What does it say? Does it tell you how much I have on there? Can you do a DF on the Mac? Is that a thing you can do? What does it say? Uh, yeah, 1.3 terabytes. Does that sound right? All right, West Payne. Let's do this. You get it started. I'm going to give you time. I got a few things to talk about. We got things to get into. So you kick it off. You give me the flag if you got any problems or when you get to a major milestone, and we'll do a check-in. You know, you'll be happy to know the first step here recommends me curling something and piping into SH, so that is thanks my for favorite. handing me your very expensive laptop. And don't worry, I just did a pseudo-s, so you can go to town. Because <laughs> that's how we're going to get it. All right, we'll check back in in a few minutes. 
We are just a couple of weeks away from our meetup on the East Coast in Raleigh, North Carolina on April 9th. There is a lot of people coming, Brent. Have you, Brent, have you seen these numbers? Have you? Yeah. Have you seen? We, I think we're like at 60 on the meetup yeah. now. It's just going up and up. I had a look and I browsed through all the names and I just kept smiling, but mostly because usually if there's like 60 there, then there's even more that show up. So I, I think it's going to be real exciting. Yeah. I think we might have like a hundred people or something. I think it's going to be pretty big. Uh, and I've heard from people that can't make it to, we'll always try to do more meetups too, but maybe you can. We'd love to see you there April 9th. We're going to be at a park. It's going to be outdoors. It's a beautiful time of the year to be in North Carolina. And this is just outside of Raleigh at a park that has a barbecue on one end and a brewery on another end. And I don't think there's ever been a more perfect meetup spot. I encourage someone to to bring their drone because last time we did a meetup in a park, we got a great drone group photo. So if anybody wants to do some drone photography, this is my hint. Bring it with you. I think that'd be fun. If you can make it, let us know. We try to we try to give the uh, barbecue place and the brewery a heads up, but we we really at this point don't know what to tell them, so we're we're gonna have to go by that meetup number. So uh, uh, if you could join the meetup, I know it's a pain in the butt, it's another account, but if you could join the meetup, then we could give the barbecue place an accurate number of the amount of cows they gotta they gotta bring in. So uh, let us know meetup.com/slash Jupiter Broadcasting. I guess Brent will we'll be, we'll be able to deduct your cow quantity. Yeah, I'll, I'll donate mine. That's fine. That's really nice of you. So really, our, our only story this week is that the Asahi Linux Alpha is here. And keep in mind, this is an alpha, okay? Don't put this on your fancy, expensive Mac yet. Um, one of the big missing things, amongst a few others, is there's no GPU acceleration at this point. However, Asahi Linux comes with a customized remix of Arch that has the full Plasma desktop that is actually pretty decent with CPU accelerated graphics. So we're going to go with that. We're going to use Plasma. I'm resizing your uh, APFS partitions right now. Whoa, really? <laughs> yeah, right here. It just prompts you. It's pretty nice, too. Like, it lets you, I can specify, you can either specify, like, how big you want to make it, or you can even put a percentage. So I could just ah. say, like, hey, we're going to leave 90% to the Mac and then hmm. slice off 10% for uh, Asahi. And it seems like their strategy is to make this a dual boot thing. Like, uh, I think Hector you know, the main the main person behind the project. I think Hector even kind of frames it as you can dual boot and you can still watch Netflix in 4K and update your firmware via the Mac, use your file vault encryption, keep all of your, you know, secret stuff on the Mac that you need. And then you can also boot into Linux and have a full environment over there. And so they're really designing this as a dual boot thing. Yeah. And now if, if you're like, oh, I really just want to run Linux on here, they do have a min options, which just tries to like safely reduce the install of Mac OS down to the smallest size. Minimum viable Mac. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know where that'd be perfect is I actually see myself using this not so much on the laptop end, but on a Mac mini running headless as a server. Sure. If they could get GPU acceleration working on a Mac mini, and then I could run things like Jellyfin or Plex and get GPU accelerated decoding a video maybe even using the built-in H.264 decoders in the M1, and you're looking at 20 watts of power, I could probably quintuple the load of work that I have the machine doing for my Raspberry Pis right now. I could still run Linux, and if I could get that hardware-accelerated decoding, uh, that'd be pretty powerful. It'd be really... And plus, with Thunderbolt on there, you could hook up a large external array of solid-state disks. Not like with the Raspberry Pi right now, I'm limited to USB. Mm, right. I could really see this taking a home server setup, running Linux to the next level, especially if you're power conscious like I am, because I'm trying to run everything off solar. And so the difference between 60 watts, 20 watts, or 130 watts 
is huge for my family. It's like the difference between being able to run an appliance for dinner and not. Especially since you've, you've kind of already got over the hurdle. Now, obviously, there's differences, but you've already got over some of the hurdle of adapting your workflow to supporting an ARM platform, right? Exactly. So it's I've not already like done you don't that. have to worry about that. Yeah, so I, I want hardware acceleration, but I actually don't necessarily want it for the GUI, although, of course, I would use that on occasion. Mm-hmm. But my actual use case would be the home server setup. You just want the GPU supported so you can uh, offload stuff to yeah. it. Yeah. My bet, though, is the CPU might be fast enough that I could probably get away with software decoding and not really notice because I'd be coming from a Raspberry Pi. <laughs> right. So it really kind of depends on how viable it is. Oh, no. Process execution failed. Uh-oh. What happened over there? What happened? Red alert. Red alert. What does it tell you, Wes? What does it say? Failed to run process disk util APFS resize container. Process execution failed. Oh, Python stack trace. Turn non-zero exit status. So it failed during the actual resize? Let's try it again. That sort of seems worst case scenario, doesn't it? You know? I mean, maybe. <laughs> you failure during the disk I'm resize? sure APFS can handle it. <laughs> it's a robust yeah. file system. Uh-huh. Is it getting warm in here? Or is it, uh, is it now, just me? Last time I didn't enable expert mode. Maybe I should this time. Wes. If anybody should be enabling expert mode, it is you. What are you doing? Someone who's never used an M1 Mac before. Yeah, but you learn quick. <laughs> You're right. I mean, come on. Have some confidence. Brent, you, you got you to gotta uptalk your boy here. He's not, not, he doesn't have enough confidence in himself. Yeah, I know. He's I, got this. Yeah, it seems like if anyone can pull it off, it's definitely Wes. It's certainly not me. So, Wes, you got this. Expert mode all the way. Yeah. And if you don't get it working, we're all just going to be extremely disappointed in you. Yeah, we'll have to redo the show, but that's fine. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to wreck the show, right, Wes? No, no. <laughs> Note, your system may appear to freeze during the resize. This is normal. Just wait until the process completes. That's a nice warning. What is this? Some single-threaded bullcrap? What is that? Uh, okay, so you could do the minimal, uh, which is still going to be based on Arch. It's going to shrink the Mac install down to just the minimal viable Mac size and then use the rest for Linux. That's pretty nice. And, you know, a lot of the secret sauce in here is their uh, mini bootloader stuff that they've been working on. They've been also really good about updating documentation. They actually had a big something that Wes noticed. So they had a big documentation push right before this alpha release. That's kind of how we knew this was coming, really. And the Asahi Linux team has been just absolutely stellar about getting this code upstreamed. The idea is, is that eventually... Support for this stuff just comes baked into Linux. So once we're a few years down the road, it'll be normalized and, and gobbled up by most distros. And you won't even have to worry if that distro has support. It'll just be built into the kernel. Wouldn't that be something? Yeah. Now, how's it going over there? Well, we're trying to resize again. Mm-hmm. But I feel like there's a but. There. I, know, oh. I don't know. I oh. mean, it's right. just doing its business. We're at 15%, but that's where it was at before. So Is that where it failed before? <sighs> Man. I could try giving it less space. I mean, how much space did you give it? Uh, 150 gigs. Oh, that seems plenty. No, less space? What are you, what are you, an animal? Here's what I'm going to do. I'll buy you some time. Linode.com slash unplugged. Go there to get $100 in 60-day credit on a new account, and you go there to support this here show. Linode is fast, reliable cloud hosting. You got to try it for your next project. It's what we use for anything that we host up there in the cloud. Our Matrix instance has been growing like crazy, and this has been a great test of both Linode's alerting system, infrastructure, and ability to upgrade. I mean, I can attest it has really stayed nimble. 
we threw it on a $5 system initially, and it just seemed like that was going to be fine. There's only like, you know, a dozen people on there. Now there's thousands, and we have scaled that system up using Linode's tools, and we've been able to use their dashboard to see what the CPU is and what the memory's at and the disk space, because they really do a good job of quantifying those essential metrics in a really easy-to-read dashboard. Just pop it right on there when you go to Linode, and you get an overview of what the system's doing. And, of course, they have tools to just enable monitoring and managing that thing. So even though we don't have a big team here, we can keep something that's kind of expanding at a pretty rapid clip under control. And now that Linode has been rolling out NVMe storage on their rigs, things have just taken a whole new leap in speed. So they are their own ISP. So they just have the absolute best peering deal possible because they're dealing with themselves. They got 40 gigabit connections coming into their individual machines. They got AMD Epic CPUs on the high-end CPU systems. And now they got NVMe PCIe storage when you need that. And, you know, maybe you don't. Maybe you just want to run like a personal portfolio or a blog or a Minecraft server. They have systems that are just perfect for that and at really great prices. Linode's 30 to 50% cheaper than the large hyperscalers that want to lock you into their crazy, complicated platforms. And they got performance that beats them. It's just great. And 11 data centers around the world means you're going to have the, you're going to have the data centers where you need them, right? Like, what do you need more than 11 data centers for? What are you, a maniac? What are you? You Bezos? Come on. 11 data centers is great. When they've been doing something like this for 19 years, you know they're going to do it, right? So go see it for yourself. See why we've been talking about it. See why we've been using them for two and a half plus years and see why so many Linux Unplugged listeners have been taking advantage of that $100 offer. Now you can too. Linode.com slash unplugged. Okay, I saw some exasperation over there, West Payne. Ah, failed again. Hmm, hmm. I wonder if it's like, because we just recently did an update, could like another round of reboots That's maybe? not a bad idea. We could, I, I mean, I, I'm down for that. If you want to do that, we could do a round of reboots. That's fine. You know, there is a lesson in all of this, though. When this announcement came out, when Asahi Linux announced their availability, I really had to have a think if I even wanted to bother. <laughs> yeah. I realize it sort of is akin to putting Windows on the deck. It just, like, it can be done. This is what the audience has been trying to tell me for a while. It took me a little bit to realize it. But, like, there's better ways to run Linux out there. This is not, I, I don't think the advice of this show is ever going to be go buy a MacBook and put Linux on it. I think that's just ridiculous. I mean, I think this is the closest we've come to maybe that changing. But you're right. Before, that's kind of always been experimental. Or if you have one that's three or four years old, then maybe it works decently. The thing that uh, I find pretty interesting is there has been a couple of changes that have happened in macOS 12.3 that have specifically enabled Asahi Linux to work better on the MacBooks. Two different changes happened recently. And the only reason that Hector and the team can even conceive that they happened is to enable Asahi Linux. It's like a specific improvements for Asahi. What do you make of that? What, do, what are your thoughts on that? You know what my theory is, and I'll, I'll explain it, but what is your theory? Well, I hadn't seen those comments by Hector, so I can't comment on that part. I mean, it does seem like there's some efforts internally to make a consistent ecosystem that does support other operating systems booting. It does seem like there's been multiple avenues where things could be locked down. They didn't need to be locked down. But, you know, knowing Apple, and if you compare it to, say, their mobile platforms, places where it would have seen some restrictions that just haven't. And then above and beyond that, some work on some of this tooling, making things easier than it might necessarily have to be to, you know, just tie up loose ends, make it play nicely with the existing macOS that's going to be there. The other thing that they did, they being Apple, that I just 
didn't see coming when they announced their own hardware platform is a lot of the essential bring up that you traditionally would need a binary blob for in Linux to, to get that piece of hardware working. That's being done at the firmware level. And then it's presenting itself to the OS as ready to go. And Mac OS isn't loading these weird proprietary blobs like they even did on the Intel systems, even though they could more easily now than ever offload that work to the OS because they write the OS and the OS is only designed for their own hardware. They could have had that firmware blob stuff being done in the OS and they chose to do it at the hardware level. And so that stuff is available and ready to go for Linux and Linux doesn't have to have those binary blobs. Right. We have to figure out how to interact with their proprietary hardware, but it's interesting, like it's a different level of communication and interfacing. And so far, it seems like it's it's kind of a new paradigm for supporting Linux on on an ecosystem that is um, neutral at best to us being there. Yeah, I actually think they want it there. That's my theory. So my my conspiracy bacon on this is that they actually want Linux on the M1 and future hardware because once they start shipping M2 based Macs and all that kind of stuff, you know, once they work the M2 through the line, they're not going to stop building M1s. They're going to build their own custom M1-based servers for their iCloud data center. You know, racks and racks of M1s just on the shelf, purpose-built for a data center. And they're going to need Linux on those things. They're not going to want to run, they're not going to want to run Mac OS on 5,000 M1 servers. That's ridiculous, right? And when you think about what iCloud is mostly composed of, it's composed of database backends, object storage, Nginx, right? Standard stuff that runs on Linux. They're not running iCloud on macOS. And why wouldn't they want to use the M1 hardware that has the built-in neural engine that uses less power so they could save money at their data center? It's less cooling. You think about the economics of an M1 when you're dealing with 5,000 of them. I mean, we know know they love dogfooding when they can. So I guess I have to imagine internally the engineers have been making small, low-level tweaks to make Linux more available or to make the M1 more available to Linux. It's been my theory. We'll see because we're having trouble even getting the disk resized at this point. You can see it also just helping their own, you know, yeah, they can get internal builds of things. Maybe it makes it a little easier to sort of try out experimental Mac builds or, you know, other diagnostic setups that you might be running to try out new hardware. Yeah, yeah. But let's say you want to avoid all that. And maybe you just want to get a good old open x86 system and throw GNU slash Linux on there. And you want the top tier Linux desktop experience. You want the best of the best. That, my friends, XFCE. (laughs) All right. Good night, everybody. That's it. And we're out. (laughs) Um, No, uh, I have to say. The GNOME 42 release is looking fantastic. And since LAN kicked off, uh, we we have been running it uh, a couple of days before then, and we're running it now. And Wes has got it on his ThinkPad. I've got it on my ThinkPad. We'll talk about Brent's setup here in a moment. We're both um, running it right here in front of us right now, and we're excited to tell you all about it. So keep in mind, it is not out yet. The way we worded it in LAN was horrible. I want to just eat that uh, humble pie right here. I, I, I apologize. The release day is March 23rd, officially for GNOME 42. But realistically, if you're listening to this at home, you're going to get it in a distro. That's how you're going to hear about it or use it. That's how you're going to see it, right? It's going to be like, that'll be one of the headline features of Ubuntu 2204 and Fedora 36 is, is GNOME 42. That's really where you're going to hear about it. Uh, but you could actually get your hands on it early, various means like GNOME OS and Fedora 36, et cetera, et cetera. And um, it's here. 
It's glorious, and it is the GNOME release that we've been hoping would land since GNOME 40. Big things there in this one. A lot of apps have made the transition to GTK4, which has a lot of underlying improvements. Yeah. But the other big thing here is this actually ships, is it Edwadia? Is that how we're saying it? Libedwadia, which there was a lot of controversy about, or maybe misunderstanding is probably the way to put it. A lot of misunderstandings about originally, um, and we're seeing the fruits of that work now land in 42. We're seeing a global dark theme that is actually supported by upstream GNOME. All of that lands here. And it truly makes for a remarkable version of GNOME. It is, 40 was a big one. 42 is arguably just as big, if not bigger, in my opinion. And so, of course, I'm very, very comfortable and familiar with GNOME. So, Brent, I know this is one of your first experiences mm-hmm. with GNOME. You're a Plasma guy. So I'm curious what your GNOME 42 experience was, because we sort of just threw you in the deep end. I got to say, it looked beautiful. I didn't expect how gorgeous it was, and maybe that sounds a little silly. Um, but uh, the thing that really hit me was the dark mode. And I know there's been a lot of work going on behind the scenes almost for years about this. And it just worked flawlessly. Was, I would imagine, Chris, that was one of the first things you changed as well. <laughs> yeah, I had to try it. You know what? Much like Breeze recently, though, the recent improvements to the theme are so great, I decided to stick with the light mode. What? I don't even know you anymore. I know. I'm going to have to pull the dark theme off wow. of the website. It's a new era. I'm going to have to implement that standard. This is actually one of the great things about using dark mode now in GNOME 42 is the websites that support this standard will also detect if you have dark mode or light mode. And it's, it's yeah, just so slick. It's so slick. It's so slick. So you, if you, if you want, you change it in GNOME appearance to either light or dark. And then a lot of websites now just automatically detect it. It's anyways. I mean, I think that's just, that's one of the things about um, the recent releases of GNOME and particularly this one that it just feels like a first class environment because it's something that you might be used to or have seen on other platforms. And the more of those that land on the Linux side of the fence, it just, it just means people, people won't be complaining or missing those features when they, when they come on over. Another thing, Chris, you suggested that I play with, since you knew I was a deep KDE user, um, was the extensions. And I had a deep hesitation there, and I, you, you seemed really excited about it and suggested a few. But my hesitation was that it felt as though extensions, if they were needed to get a desktop running that was helpful – that maybe there was something missing in, in kind of the vanilla offering. I think Brent's been listening to Michael Dominic again. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> this is, yeah, this is a, definitely a soapbox of Michael Dominic on Coder. Is it really? This is definitely, yeah, well, this is actually kind of a sensitive issue. This is kind of a touchy topic, uh, I feel like, and it's one that the GNOME community is still kind of sorting out, in my opinion. Um, that's just my opinion. Well, it's a different, it's kind of a different way to do extensions too, right? There's not like, a, it's not like a tight knit extensions API that provides this set of capabilities. It's sort of like, well, you can do a lot with these GNOME extensions, and that means sometimes they do too much or are written yeah. poorly and can therefore impact the stability of the system. Right. Like but they can also transform the desktop in a way that you don't always see on other platforms. It's pretty common to, say you say you install four or five extensions, it's pretty common for one of them just to not even work, right? That's not too unusual. Uh, we both we all know of one that I tried that uh, it didn't work, so I just had to disable it. We mentioned We were talking about it this morning. And... And that happens, and that's not a great experience. But Brent, I think your core argument or uh, question 
is one that a lot of people raise is, should I even need to add this stuff or should I even add this stuff? And I think that just comes, that's a decision that ultimately each user has to make. And, and ultimately, I'm grateful that we still have the choice. I think that's where I fall on it. I think I kind of agree with you. It, now, since we're talking about it, it reminds me of extensions, say, in Firefox. And it's much the same. Like you, There are a few that are I can't live without and that are amazing and that need to kind of earn your trust. Uh, from using it for a bit. And the one you suggested that I install right away was the app indicator support. And that actually did make me feel right at home. So thank you. And I think I would need that to use GNOME 42. And it seemed well supported and well used. And I kind of scrolled through the list of other extensions and some of them felt, hmm, suspect maybe. Like there were some that were trying to, anyways, there were some that just, I, my, my, red flag sure. bells ringing sort of that seems like a big there was change. no way i was gonna install those yeah yeah for yep. sure yeah i'd follow you on that i'd say for someone who's you know i consider myself adventurous but also cautious so i'd say just just kind of do some reading and maybe play with them on a system that's not your production machine at first Altair, you just made a great point in the irc and that is it's sort of a double-edged sword having no api means that extensions can kind of do anything, right? There's no limit, which is not necessarily maybe a great thing. Um, yes, it's like a weird thing because part of the reasons they're so powerful is like they can touch anything, but also it's downfall. If we're like, it's kind of similar to how the old Firefox extensions used to work, uh, where they could like do amazing things and all kinds of awesome stuff. But once they started like migrating things over to web extensions, a lot of the functionality was removed and having to uh, maintain an API is like a really, really hard thing and coming up with the boundaries and what the capabilities of what you allow things to do is like a a very hard thing and that requires like lots of resources. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, and I could see I could see there being some pushback if there was an effort around that because, you know, uh, this uh, super popular extension would break. But at the same time, you have to think maybe long term it would be the best, right, Brent? Because I think you're kind of coming at this as a Plasma user where Plasmoids are built into the desktop experience and you can pull down more. And it's it sort of feels maybe is safer the right term? You know, I was toying with that. I think at first I, f- I felt it was safer, but then I was like, well, maybe it's just more familiar. And hmm. it felt like it was more integrated as well. Like, for instance, the GNOME extensions application wasn't even installed by default. So I had to kind of, you know, install that stuff and go browse and find some on the web. So it, maybe it was the process that felt a little different or just that it wasn't familiar. But Chris, I know you've basically used extensions on your GNOME desktops for years. And I wondered how you felt about it in this new version. I always start uh, with the absolute minimum possible whenever I do a, a new GNOME install. And I just kind of incrementally add the ones that I'd like to have. Although I admit I have a low threshold. Like I like having all my virtual desktops displayed up in the top bar. So I have a visual indicator where I'm at. So I'll turn that kind of stuff on. So it's kind of a low bar. But I also find that pretty much consistently with every GNOME release, I have less and less extensions that I find myself actually installing. Either they've made some improvement or... I've just learned to kind of adjust my workflow and we kind of met in the middle. And that seems to be pretty common. Like, I'll give you, a, here's, a, here's an example. I used to install this really handy screenshot extension that I thought was great. And I take screenshots all the time so I can send Wes stuff and bug him during the day. Like, I got to have a good screenshot tool so that way I can spam Wes. And 
I would install an extension for that right out of the box every time. And now in GNOME 42, they have this new screenshot experience. In my opinion, it's the best on any modern desktop out there. It's so clean. It's so quick. And I think like Spectacle on Plasma is really great for screenshots and it has a lot of cool power options. Yeah. But this is so simple and straightforward and smooth. Clean. and Yeah, right. I mean, the UI is, is kind of just the right size without being in the way. And yeah. video yeah. built right in. That was impressive. Yeah, that's so great. And that kind of stuff has just gotten better and better over the years. The other thing that landed that we used to have to do a little extra setup that's just now built in is the remote desktop stuff. We talked about this with GNOME 41. And the bits were there, all the server, all the back-end bits were there, but the front-end UI bits to turn it on weren't there. And this remote desktop setup is a really great experience because it's taking essentially a Wayland session and piping it over RDP. And so you use an RDP client to connect to your GNOME desktop. And <laughs> and Sorry. The, the GNOME desktop is depending on your RDP client, extremely responsive in that remote session. And so I have used this combined with TailScale as like my go-to remote solution for Dylan's laptop now. And it's just great. Oh, really? That's your go-to? Wow. Yeah, because he's always on the TailScale network. And you and you and I figured out how to turn on the RDP stuff before the bits were exposed. Mm-hmm. And it was too late. We'd seen everything. So I just got it going. And now that this is just built in and you can just check the box, it's available to anybody. So you you go in there now to the sharing section where you maybe in the past would like turn on a VNC sharing stuff. Uh, But now you can take advantage of RDP, which is Microsoft's remote desktop protocol. Fine, I'll I'll give you access. (laughs) It's so nice. And it's it's just another example of a feature that I never really thought was going to get integrated that's just now built in. And it solves that problem of how am I going to get remote access to this desktop session that's on Wayland, right? Because when we when we switched to Wayland, we lost a lot of the remote desktop features of X. And this is bringing it back in kind of a modern way that you can run on anything. You can get an RDP client on an iPad, right? And you can have your GNOME desktop on an iPad now. It's so great. Minimac, now you've got a question that has plagued GNOME users for a long time. Indeed. So what about the SysTray? Is there still an extension for that? Because I have some, I don't know, do you have a VPN? If you have a VPN and you have that VPN icon in the SysTray that you could just click on it and then you have a VPN connection. Or I have a FlameShot, which is a screenshot editor with a beautiful SysTray and everything. Is there an extension for that? There's a couple of SysTray extensions. If you need, if you have an app that still uses that older API, there are a couple of options. And the one that we've all been, I, th- I don't know if you tried this one, Wes, but Brent and I were using the one that essentially just implements the Plasma desktop API. Oh, nice. Yeah, it works, right? And thankfully, that extension is already available for GNOME 42. There's actually a fair amount that are good to go. Uh, before it's even final. Right. And that's, I think that maybe is one thing you can, you'll learn a little if you spend a little while in the ecosystem, sort of figuring out like what, what extensions A, are more sensitive to being broken, release to release, and then also which ones really stay on top of things. All right. I, I, boy, I feel like this Libidwadia topic, we could really, we could, we could spend a whole episode on, but GNOME 42 is the first version that puts it at the heart of what defines the look. And it's an updated toolkit that brings just I think the final level of polish that I was waiting for, there was a lot of misunderstanding about the direction of theming on GNOME. And during the kind of heat of that moment, I kind of had the realization that if GNOME's default look, the upstream look of GNOME was just good enough, 
maybe we wouldn't want a theme anymore. And as someone who has literally themed every version of GNOME since 2, and every version of GNOME 3, and I themed GNOME 40, and I rethemed GNOME 41, I am here to tell you, starting with GNOME 42, I'm going with the default theme from now on. They've really nailed it. The default theme is polished. It's so well done. And with the global dark mode that is now just supported by the entire project, there are aspects to the UI that are more visible and usable than they were with previous dark mode themes. It really does make a difference to have the entire desktop environment supported and to have the app start updating to support it. And we're starting to see a lot of apps in the ecosystem try to target GTK4 now. And that combined with Libidwadia and the Global Dark theme, it really comes together to a level of polish that I've never seen before on the Linux desktop in 20 plus years that I've been using it. It's a remarkable release for that version alone. So much so that even though you could get Ubuntu 2204 with the triple buffering patch that we'll talk about, that would probably make it a slightly faster experience, I still am really suggesting that perhaps you try Fedora 36 instead because they're shipping the default theme. And the default theme is so good that I don't think you should miss out on the GNOME 42 experience. That's my advice now, is go with vanilla GNOME because it looks the best. That's a huge change. That's a huge change. Yeah, wow. I mean, you... They've nailed That's kind of like one of the first things you would do is, you know, yeah. sort of get things looking decent. It's a huge, it's a huge change. Um, it's so great. It really is great to be able to say that now. We do have some applications that have changed, like Gedit's gone. There's a new text editor. And Carl, you saw a note about the new terminal app. I, I missed that. What was that? Yeah, it looks like there's a new GNOME console app uh, on the Fedora 36 Nightly. It's not installed by default, but it is in the repos. And from what I'm reading about it online, this looks to be a simple terminal emulator, um, not really to replace GNOME Terminal, just for it's a it's a console app for people that don't use the terminal that that often is its own description. Uh, it seems really limited. It doesn't even have a settings that I can find. But one cool feature that it has is that when you elevate to root, the header bar turns a shade of red, which is pretty <laughs> neat. That Ooh, is console. Yeah. yeah. Danger. <laughs> Danger. You're in the root zone. Oh, yeah. Look at that. Neat. <laughs> yeah, it's very similar to the um, to the feature that used to be present on SUSE Linux distributions way back with their customized GNOME 2 and KDE 4, where if you did privilege escalation, the terminal app itself changed to indicate very strongly that you were running as a super user and you should be careful. That's a good idea. Mm. That is a good idea. So I, I really liked Fedora 36. And last night or this morning, I RC1 of GNOME 42 landed on my box. So that's been really nice. Brent, did you try it on Ubuntu or did you try it on Fedora? Uh, I tried Fedora. Come on. Get, try something new. And, uh, oh, 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 okay. Yeah. okay. Well, I'm not that familiar with Fedora, but our last... Um, our last foray into that was a good experience, so I thought, why not? Plus, you yeah. were yeah. you were championing it quite strongly, so I figured I should go that way. And uh, yeah, it was flawless. I didn't have any issues. I loved it, the whole thing. Wow. I know. Jeez, it's That's pretty- That's high priority. This is actually the smoothest Fedora beta I've ever run. Usually, if I, if I run the Fedora Rawhide beta stuff for like more than two weeks, I usually, something crashes and burns. So, I mean, it may still happen. Fedora 36 isn't final yet, so I may still get bit. But there is an argument to be made to try this on Ubuntu 22.04 LTS when it ships because it was Canonical staff that originally created this GNOME triple buffering support. And 
this triple buffering patch is nice for those of us maybe are on Intel GPUs that are struggling a little bit to keep up uh, with certain aspects of the GNOME desktop. And it causes the GPU to bump up into a higher performance state during this additional bursty work and then kind of scale back down transparently. And I guess currently that's not happening. And you put this triple buffering patch in there and it's a noticeable improvement in the smoothness of the interface for those of us that are on integrated GPUs. I think I saw this mentioned something about Raspberry Pis too, if you happen to be uh, trying it on there. Hmm. Hmm. So Canonical's decided they're going to just go ahead and ship it in Ubuntu 22.04 because the patch just didn't land in time for 42, it seems. Uh, that's at least my current understanding. I'm very sad about this. I really, really wanted that to land. If it had landed, this truly would be the GNOME release that has everything we've been waiting for, right? Because even when 40 came along, like that was a big update. But we were like, okay, well, the transition to GTK4, and we knew Libidwadi was in the uh, far-off distant future. And so it's like, okay, 40 is a big release, but there's like more coming. And basically everything is in 42 except for that triple buffering patch. So it's like, okay, well, now I'm going to be waiting a little bit for an update. But I actually really have no complaints performance-wise, so it's not really a big deal. Now I'm wondering how to put my own janky build together. Jeez. I'm a little concerned that you're in the recovery environment right now on the Mac over there, Wes. I take it that the old Asahi Linux install has hit yet another uh, bump yeah, in the road? Yeah, it's not quite <laughs> going so well yet. It is alpha. Uh, <laughs> so why are you in the recovery environment? Well, we were having some issues uh, shrinking the partitioning yeah, so that we sure. can make some room for Linux. And so I thought, eh, maybe if we try it from this environment, it might I go see. a little better. So Plus, I go- can inspect the uh, uh-huh. APFS volume and make sure Oh yeah, you, you should- know, make sure there's no issues there to start with. Do one of them verifies that they do there, right? Right. Do a verify of the old file system, and then you could resize it in the disk utility app, and that probably won't lose all my data. So that's that's the way. I'm not goes. actually sure how to resize it. I did copy the command, so we'll, you know, one way or another. All right, here, I'll buy you a few minutes. Hey, I got a live stream coming up on March 31st, so join me for a live Q&A, and I'm going to give away some Satoshis to help people set up their Boost wallets, because I really think we have a, a window of time here, and so go grab yourself a new podcast app at newpodcastapps.com. We recommend the Fountain app. Uh, Castomatic on iOS is really great as well, and Blue Wallet's available, but I think Fountain is the best experience, and I want to help you get started by giving away some stats that have essentially been sent in by the audience. We'll pull them all together and I'll give out, a f- I'll give out some, 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 um, some of them uh, hot Satoshis. I, I hear know. you're even using Fountain for some of your day-to-day podcast listening. Huh? I have. Yeah, I've switched over now because here's what my thinking is, is I think we have an opportunity to build out a peer-to-peer network of Lightning-connected Linux users. We start by, you know, obviously, I have some skin in this game. This benefits me, but we start by supporting independent media. I'm saying the podcast audience, right? We build out Okay, so let's just say, like, let's say the show has tens and tens of thousands, five tens, maybe six tens of thousands of listeners, right? And let's just say, in theory, I can talk a thousand of you into supporting somebody who's been making content for you for 15 years. And let's say I can get a handful of you who see the value in how hard we've been working nonstop every single week for 15 years straight. And I can convince maybe 2,000 people to switch over and start getting on the Lightning Network and supporting the show's through value for value and boosts. So what happens when the next Linux podcaster realizes that 2,000 people who listen to the largest Linux podcast are all now wired up to the Lightning Network? Well, that new Linux podcaster that comes online is going to immediately start also getting boosts. 
they're going to have a built-in audience already, right? So there's an immediate network effect amongst me and my friends once they figure it out. But then what happens when we've got three, 5,000 people now on this network and the first free software project that we care about comes on the network? That's 5,000 Linux-loving users that are already on the network and ready to support that project. And all they have to do is set up a lightning node. I think it all starts here. We have the network effect to generate this. Like, this is actually something the show can move the needle on for the first time in what feels like forever now. So let's get together. Join me on the live stream, jblive.tv, March 31st. And I'll uh, send out some stats. I mean, I, I don't, I'm not, uh, I'm not uh, like Elon Musk over here, but I want to help you get started on this. And I recognize that actually getting something in that wallet is like the barrier to entry right now. It just is. And I really believe in this. So I'm willing to put my money where my mouth is on this. And so it just imagine a day where this starts to take off, right? So go grab a new podcast app at newpodcastapps.com. Get in on the boost. Send the show some boost. Let's start playing with this. Also, I think the other thing I want to do during that live stream is I'd love to help anybody who's had trouble getting on our Matrix server. If you've been trying to like get on Matrix or you've been thinking about setting up Matrix and joining the Jupiter Broadcasting Matrix, I want to help you do that during this live stream as well. So it's a Q&A. Anything, anything goes. Uh, ask me anything. I'd love to get my friends to come hang out with me, guys. <clears throat> and also, uh, I'm going to be giving out some sats to people who are setting up a new podcast app wallet and want to help do some boosting. And last but not least, we'll just hang out and chat and maybe get some people on our matrix system as well. So it's going to be 4 p.m. Seattle time, 7 p.m. New York time, 11 p.m. London, March 31st at jblive.tv. I'd love to see you there. We got a little bit of feedback and a whole bunch of boosts. So first for the feedback, we got a listener asking, I'm interested in exploring the Fedora ecosystem, and I would consider moving my Arch Jellyfin Docker NAS Frankenstein machine to a more stable platform. Sounds like they've been listening to us too much. Amazing. Is CentOS Stream something that one can let run with automated updates and get away with monthly updates like a big Pac-Man upgrade? I think that's a great question. It's one that, I, of course, everybody's going to have an interpretation on. But, uh, Neil, you want to uh, put your name on the line and give an official recommendation? Quote, unquote, official. <laughs> as official as unofficial gets? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Um, so I've actually been doing this now for a year. I've been running CentOS Stream on a couple of boxes uh, with DNF Automatic configured using Cockpit. Like there's, you can activate Cockpit, install it, have, and from within the uh, web UI, you can configure automatic updates. I have it update every Sunday at 3 a.m. and it reboots itself and brings everything back online every Sunday, every week, without fail. No problem at all. And it's been doing this since, okay, when was the, when did I actually set this machine? June, late June. And nothing's blown up in your face yet. No, it's been totally fine. It's been phenomenal. And the experience is, is pretty good. Like, um, I, I can't say the same thing about the desktop. The desktop experience really only solidified in the fall, but, uh, the, the, the server experience has been bang up awesome uh pretty much since june and uh i mean even the new podman 4.0 is there um the cockpit management of of containers through podman are is present cockpit uh machines is there so if you want to if it's a bare metal server and you want to also manage a mixture of virtual machines and containers that's all present it's super solid works great and i really have no complaints about it of course you know i'm working on you know CentOS Stream 9 Hyperscale. And once I've got more of those pieces laid down, I plan to um, 
migrate that machine to hyperscale, but that's because I like to eat my own dog food and I think my stuff is awesome. But uh, I've been running vanilla CentOS Stream 9 for almost a year now and it's been fine. All right. That's great. I, I also think it would be more than fine, especially he's coming from Arch, right? right. So Fedora would even be like a, a scale back in the, in the terms of changes. But I actually think CentOS strikes the right balance there. If you think of CentOS Stream 9 as a continuation of the Fedora 34 code stream for many more years, then you will be fine. Like if you liked what Fedora Linux 34 offered from Fedora Workstation 34 minus the Butterfest stuff, um, you know, and having some of the light touch enhancements and backports of, you know, enhancements and, and neat things that Red Hat and, and the community have worked on in 35 and in 36, uh, and you just want a stabilized platform with a good balance between feature enhancements and stability, then you're going to have a nice time on CentOS Stream 9. And if you want to, and, and CentOS Stream 9 is supported for the quote-unquote full support phase of the RHEL life cycle, which is five and a half years. That's pretty good, yeah. That is, especially for free. Right. And once you're, once you're past that, you could either use Red Hat Enterprise Linux 9 genuine article to get a full 10-year life cycle, and there'll probably be RHEL rebuilds like Alma Linux or whatever that'll, that you could use if you want to go that route instead. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Now I want to make it clear uh, because he is coming from Arch, Carl, we should probably make a little disclaimer that he shouldn't expect this to be a rolling distro. Right. Yeah. There's still, we're still seeing uh, misconceptions in the community. Uh, some of it caused by the own CentOS messaging, but uh, CentOS stream is not a real rolling release. Like most people think of it, it's going to stay on the same major version nine and the updates you see are going to be the same updates you'd see within a real major version. Um, so really the big change is that there's no minor versions, but you're not going to wake up one day and have rel 10 content on there. It's still going to be what you see in, in rel nine and only the kind of updates you'd see going from say 9.0 to 9.1 are the updates you'll see on that system. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for making that clear. I think that's good for people to understand and, and you'll know when that's coming because we'll be talking about it here on this show. So you'll have plenty of a heads up. And now as the French say, it is time for Le Boost. Samuel Blair wrote in with a boost. Been listening for years. Already supporting the show, but figured I would give this boost thing a try. Keep up the good content. Slow down a little if you need. The community is not going anywhere. Aw, well that's nice. Uh, six days ago, 5,000 sats. Thank you, freak. Sadly, the Lightning System does not work with the core contributorship. It'd be very cool, for example, to get access to an ad-free feed at greater than X sats per minute. What I'm going to do is play with the sats per minute settings and the occasional boost to get to around $10 to $20 per month over all my podcasts that support it. Yeah, you know, there's a lot there that A, we're not happy with with our current setup because, well, this stuff's all new and not all of the various pieces that we've had to bolt together to uh, make the membership stuff work supported right now. And then also just like, you know, this kind of new stuff and yeah, you could see a whole sat powered you know lightning based um membership system maybe i don't know what do you think brent yeah we've had a few people write in about this very problem and i think they're totally right despite it being a little bit of an edge case i think um i think just wait and see like this is progress um that we're sort of in maybe some transitional phases so i mean wes you've done a ton of work on the back end to try to like literally like you said bolt things together so um i think it's been working great but there's always progress to be made 
All right. Well, Mollusk sent us a boost saying, great show, guys. Been listening uh, for over 10 years. And I'm glad to see you guys embrace podcasting 2.0. Keep up the good work. Our next one, DG Wolf writes in, uh, thanks for revisiting Jellyfin, guys. I tried it years ago, but it was a little rough. Uh, But he gave it another go after we talked about it, and it's now replacing his Plex server. How is that awesome? Wow, dang. Yeah, from North Carolina, too. So hopefully we'll see him at the meetup. We'll see him. Always good to hear some Jellyfin love, too. You know, I mean, it's it maybe not for everyone, but it's come a long way. Scuba Steve. Scuba Steve, who's in the mumble room, too. So, like, getting double points today. Four days ago, sent us a boost that said, can't wait to see you guys in Raleigh. Oh, Scuba, you're going to be in Raleigh. That's great. That's great. So, he asked what we think about Substack, um, which is, I think I'm going to punt this question to Coda Radio. So, tune, oh, in, yeah. tune in to Coda Radio for that one, because uh, I think that's going to be a good, a good discussion between Mike and I. Uh, Hudson said five days ago, you know, the thing about value for value is that it gives you skin in the game. It incentivizes people to create quality feedback. Unlike a YouTube comment, if I send you guys a thousand sats to make a comment, I'm going to make sure it's thoughtful. Otherwise, I'm just wasting my money. Imagine this concept, but throughout all of the internet. It may be a potential way to clean up a lot of the junk and the noise on the internet. I am of a really mixed opinion on this, Hudson. Uh, I definitely have witnessed what you're saying firsthand. Um, and yet at the same time, I, I hate the idea of creating financial barriers to participate on the web. But I guess that's a little, um, that's a little of an extreme view. That's probably not what would happen, right? You'd just get some places that ask for a little bit of value to participate to reduce the cost of harassment and spamming. And I'm watching this play out in real time at stacker.news. I mentioned this to you guys a couple yeah. of weeks ago. Stacker.news is like Reddit, but you have sats. There's an incentive system around uh, quality posts and quality comments. They're incentivized by a couple of sats, kind of like the boosts are. And I've been checking this site for about three weeks. And what's interesting is you could cut out Reddit and Twitter altogether, avoid both those dumpster fires. And I'd say you'd still get 80% of the value without all of this stuff that upsets you. Oh, that's appealing right there. So it's like if you're willing to miss out on some things, but still get most of the value of Twitter and Reddit, Stacker.News has been really great. And I have to think it's because there is an incentive for quality content. But even more importantly, there's an incentive for high quality comments. So it's not just these crappy, you know, fights that happen. It's like people are providing additional source material and references. Yeah, that's been really cool. Yeah, it seems like it could still be vulnerable to sort of, you know, groupthink or other other problems, higher level problems. But maybe you could address some of those lower level just, you know, posting that, yeah, isn't isn't relevant or, yeah, as you say, is fighting or... I think First. it's a nice social experiment. Uh, I don't know if I'm ready to see something like that be like the concept be adopted everywhere. Yeah. But I think it is an interesting experiment to watch a group do and see how it goes. Um, that's stacker.news if you want to check that out. I've been kind of following it. And I mean, it's definitely Bitcoin heavy uh, and lightning heavy, but that happens to be things I'm interested in. But it's not just that stuff. It, it's like the stuff that would normally kind of be circulating that's popular and trending, but without all of the garbage. Anonymous sent us a boost six days ago. It says it feels very good to be listening to your podcast and streaming in and streaming some sats back. It's quite literally value for value. I love it. And I could see doing it for free software one day. And I completely agree, Anonymous. I think that's going to be, that's where I, I see the shift. But we'll see. We'll see if we get there. 
It may happen. It may not. You know what? I may just be wasting my breath. We shall see. All right. Thank you for boosting everybody. But with the boost all boosted, Wes Payne, let's do a check-in on that MacBook Max. I know you've been in disk utility for the last few minutes. How's it going? Bad news. Uh Uh-oh. It seems like you've got some kind of disk corruption going on here. Oh, I like how it's my problem all of a sudden. Well, I found it this way. At least you think I've already corrupted it I'm surprised you haven't fixed it already. That's all. That's all. Yeah, well, I've rebooted into the recovery environment, running first aid on it from disk utility, and all I get is this uh, pop-up here with with the... error signs. So saying, a file system, now I don't, I don't even understand how that's possible considering what if the resizing stuff that failed partway through with that error caused the error? possible. Because this but, is like but a it was fresh... Also, it failed because it found an error. Oh. So it probably wasn't that. It's probably already existed. The volume slash dev slash rdisk 3s5 was found to be corrupt and needs to be repaired. Unable to perform declared repairs without full space verification. Well, it looks like we won't be getting Asahi Linux on there today. We may just have to nuke and pave the thing. Do a fr- I mean, it's pretty fresh install. It's like browsers installed. There's Telegram installed. Yeah, I was going to say, how, how much junk do you have on here? I mean, it must have been Edge. It must have been putting the Microsoft Edge on there. <sighs> I can't there. trust it. It's got to be it. That's got to be what but it we're was. We're going to put it on Asahi as well. We just can't get that far. <laughs> yeah, I got to log it on my Microsoft account and sync it up. All right, well, let's do a couple of picks. I don't know. The whole show is ruined now. We've got to redo the whole show now. Uh, we have two picks for you. First one is Fountain. That's the podcast app that I like. Uh, version 0.3.10 just came out this last week. And you can now opt to have your boosts public, if you like, in the Fountain app. And the second pick is Antenapod 2.5. A really cool release because this one lets you be a cool guy with your own Antenapod sync setup. Really? Yeah, using Gpotter for Nextcloud, which is a thing. You can load Wait, that up Wait. on your own Nextcloud instance. Back up a little bit. Uh-huh. Gpotter for Nextcloud. Okay. It's an app now for <laughs> Nextcloud. Sweet. Yeah. You know, if you think about it, it's genius because then the Gpotter folks aren't responsible for like paying out for massive, massive infrastructure yes. all the time, right? Yep. And it gives you a backend sync that you can self-host on Nextcloud. So if you've already got Nextcloud, why not go install the old Gpotter app and then you can take AntennaPod and point that at the Gpotter app. Are you following me, Wes? Right, yeah. <laughs> now you have like a sync backend, and then you take your mobile app and you say, hey, sync over here. It's just Antenapod doesn't get enough love on this show because it's A, a popular app amongst our audience, B, a great podcast app, and C, open source. I just wish that they also supported Boost. You know? Hey, why don't you uh, file a PR? You're right. I should file a PR. That's a great idea. I have a sense they're probably aware of the whole podcasting yeah, two spec. I'm sure. I would hope so. If they're not, I should probably do a little research. But we'll have links to both the new Fountain release, which is a great looking release too. I mean, it. I mentioned uh, public boost, but there's a bunch of other nice stuff in there. One of the other cool things about Fountain, I'm just going to mention real quick, is uh, that has the coolest clipping system that you can. It'll combine the album art with a waveform that it'll auto-generate, and then you can make a YouTube video out of it or an MP4 or just an audio file. And I really feel like uh, more popular clip sharing, and then it has like a Discover tab inside the app where you can see other clips that people have made. I really feel like that'd be a great way to grow podcasting and help people discover good shows because you get a real taste of the flavor, as they say. Also, Fountain is working on transcription, which is such a cool feature. It can just it can transcribe each episode. Uh, so you can it'll help. Do the edit. You'll work with the edit too for that. 
which is such a neat feature to take the transcription and use it to help cut the clips down and stuff like that. I mean, it's pretty cool stuff they're building in this app. At some point, we're going to be making our podcast in the Fountain app. That's what it sounds like. I know, right? I know. Jeez. Anyways, links to them in the show notes at linuxunplugged.com slash 450. Over there, you'll also find our contact page. We'd love to hear from you via the contact page as well. And uh, you'll also get, um, what, Wes? Subscribe links, uh, matrix info, uh, mumble info. That's right. That's that's all over there. Easy ways to send us an uh, email. If you yeah. Wanna, you want to send us your pics or your thoughts. That's fine. That's fine. And, of course, you're welcome to join us live. We do the show on Sundays. Get together at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern. JBLive.tv. See you next week. Same bad time, same bad station. And, of course, don't miss Linux Action News. If you're in the industry, you got to catch Linux Action News. It's It's almost a mandate. Just not yet. Not yet. Yeah, you know, Congress can't get anything done. No. We're working on it, though. we got a lobby group. We're paying them with Dogecoin. Uh, and, uh, in the meantime, just go to linuxactionnews.com yourself before you're compelled to do it. And, uh, you know, listen to it. <laughs> That's my worst pitch ever. But I think you get the idea. Anyways, we just appreciate you listening. Nothing else. Just thanks. You're great. We really do thank you and everybody out there. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday. Last minute update to the show here, Wes Payne. It appears that AntennaPod is working on value for value support. We have a Pi Crash update with a link to a GitHub issue that was opened up on November 8th, 2020. And it even includes a diagram of how the value for value flow model works. Look at this. If you were wondering what the hell we've been talking about and you wanted a visual, this is it. We'll put a link in the show notes to this. And it, it's exciting to see that AntennaPod is indeed working on this. How about that? Yeah, I don't know if it's, uh, right now there's some discussion on the forum. Been a little while since there's an yeah. update. I mean, it could happen, though. It could happen. Like, I we mean, have a thread to tug on now. But it is, maybe maybe it needs a little um, a little bit of a demonstration of interest, perhaps? That never hurts. I mean, we you know what? You build out the network. The bigger the network gets, the more everyone's incentive aligns, right? Like, of course, JB stands to make some money. But, of course, so does every other podcaster. And so does open source projects and pretty soon individuals. Like, that's how a network effect works. And the more people on the network, the more valuable it becomes. And why not go with something that's decentralized, it's open source, and it's completely sovereign so people can self-host their own nodes if they want to. Just make it real easy for us to all uh, shoot some payments for us being cool to each other. Pew, pew! I like what you're doing over there. Yeah, hey, good job. Here, here, have some.